You're listening to Aperitivo, first broadcast on the 13th of November 2013 on Monocle 24. Aperitivo, brought to you by the Glenlivet. Hello from Midori House in London and welcome to Aperitivo, coming to you live from Studio One and just down the road from the Monocle Cafe, I'm Andrew Tuck. On today's show, from Capitol Hill and Midtown Manhattan to Jakarta and Cairo, we'll review the day's top news stories with Xenia Dormady and Stuart Purvis here in the studio. Then we meet the Reuters journalist who uncovered the hidden billions of Iran's Ayatollah Khamenei. We found that within a few short years, instead of giving the money to charities, they were keeping it for themselves and amassing a huge portfolio of real estate. And psychoanalyst and author Josh Cohen meets us at the Monocle Cafe. He'll tell us why privacy is under assault and what we can do about it. All that plus music and a look ahead to the rest of the day on Monocle 24. That's Aperitivo with me, Andrew Tuck, starting right now. So lots coming up here on the next hour on Aperitivo. But before all that, here's Paul Osborne with the latest news. Aid has finally reached some of the areas worst affected by a huge typhoon in the Philippines. The first supply planes have arrived in Tacloban, the city which was largely destroyed by Friday's typhoon and the subsequent storm surge. Thousands are waiting at the city's airport, hoping to be evacuated. The US ambassador to the Philippines, Harry Thomas, is in Tacloban to see progress in aid operations. We're confident that the uh, Philippine government will be able to distribute and disperse it as it arrives. Uh, All of these things take time. The first part is assessment to know what the damage is, what's needed and where. I think the government has finished that and now you're starting to see a much larger scale flow of things. Officials say the country is facing its biggest ever logistical challenge. 11 million people were affected by the typhoon. More than 100 Tamils have been stopped from entering Sri Lanka's capital, Colombo, as the city prepares to host a summit of Commonwealth leaders. All had relatives who disappeared during or after the country's civil war. Meanwhile, a team of British journalists who've been reporting in the past on war crimes allegations in Sri Lanka have been stopped from visiting a former war zone. Egypt's ousted president has refused to appoint lawyers to represent him in court, saying the charges against him are illegitimate. Mohamed Mursi has insisted he is Egypt's rightful ruler, claiming he was kidnapped by the military after he was deposed in July. In a statement, he said Egypt can't return to stability until he's returned to power. The United States has declared two Nigerian militant groups, Boko Haram and Ansaru, as terrorist organisations. They've been blamed for thousands of deaths during a violent campaign to impose Islamic law. Boko Haram frequently targeted schools as well as Nigeria's military. The decision means it's now illegal under US law to provide material support to either group. The UN's refugee agency is warning a lack of funds means many Syrian refugees face little help against a harsh winter. The UNHCR says it has only half the money it needs to help 270,000 refugees survive the coming months. That's only a fraction of the 800,000 who have crossed from Syria into Lebanon. Ninette Kelly, from the UNHCR's representative in Syria, warns the humanitarian crisis could get even worse. 
We have been able to do a lot this year, but not sufficient to meet the need, and that is largely because of shortage of funding and our inability, because of that, to gear out and have the breadth that we needed in this country. A Spanish court has failed to find anyone directly responsible for causing the country's worst-ever environmental disaster. The oil tanker Prestige sank off northern Spain 11 years ago, spilling 50,000 tonnes of oil and polluting thousands of miles of coastline. But a court has acquitted the ship's captain and chief engineer, as well as a senior Spanish official. The head of the International Olympic Committee says new ways to uncover drug cheats should be a top priority for international sport. Thomas Bach told a conference that it's vital to step up attempts to prevent doping. He says next year's Winter Olympics in Russia will see even tougher testing. Testing will once again cover the full in-competition menu of prohibited substances and methods. We shall be smarter and tougher in our fight against doping than at any previous Olympic Winter Games. That's the latest news on Monocle 24. Thank you very much, Paul. You're listening to Aperitivo here on Monocle 24, and we're right back after this. London, New York, Tokyo. This is Monocle 24. London, New York, Tokyo. To buy Monaco, 24. Londres, Nova York, Tokyo. London, New York, Tokyo. This is Monaco, 24. London, New York, Tokyo. This is Monaco, 24. London, New York, Tokyo. Monaco, 24. London, New York, Tokyo. This This is Monocle 24. And you're listening to Aperitivo, and the time here in London now is uh, 18.06, which means it's 13.06 in New York. And joining me in the studio with their take on the news is Xenia Dormandy, Project Director for the US Programme at Chatham House, and Stuart Purvis, Professor of Television Journalism at City University London, and author of When Reporters Cross the Line, The Heroes, The Villains, The Hackers and The Spies. Uh, welcome both to the programme. A, a very nice long title there you've got for your, for your book, Stuart. Um, we're going to start straight away with the, the news that was at the top of the show, which is about, obviously about the Philippines, where the initial death and destruction of Typhoon Haiyan has been transformed into stories about looting, shortages of food, water and medicine. Uh, Zenia, let's start with you. When this story broke, obviously a, a tragedy like this reduces everybody to equals. It, it doesn't uh, pick who it's going to kind of destroy their lives and uh, kill their loved ones. But we're now beginning to see a, a slight fracturing here. I see reports at the airport, the people getting out, are the relatives, it seems, of people in the military. There's a pecking order being uh, set up here. And the people at the bottom of that pecking order are not getting the access to food and water Do you think that there is a a potentially larger problem uh, unfolding here for President Aquino? Um, Yes, clearly there is. But, I mean, you you have to actually have some sympathy. You know, if if you're in that environment, you're going to try and get your family out. So the only way to alleviate or to to mitigate the the likelihood that people are going to show preferences, people are going to um, take such actions, is to actually have very 
uh, clear processes in place. And what is clear in the Philippines is they don't have clear processes in place. They don't have the resources. They can't supply everybody. And at least for the first few days, what they pretty much said to the external, the, the international community is, don't worry, we've got it. You know, we're handling it um, when they clearly weren't handling it. So, you know, if you will, you've got to have some sympathy that when a disaster like this happens, it is so huge, it it very quickly overcomes the resources that are available. On the other hand, it makes it all the more important that you actually have to have processes in place, you have to have systems in place to respond to something like this so you don't cause the kind of um, fracturing in the society that that you're now beginning to see, which compounds the problems that you already have um, in terms of, of feeding and meeting the needs of, of society in this in this region. Uh, very interesting, Stuart, what, what Zane you're saying. Obviously, there is this kind of narrative coming out. You know, there's, there's, there's this potential fracturing. But you're a bit disappointed with some of the journalism we're seeing, especially the reports in the West. They're focusing on the looting of the, you know, the stealing of food, supposedly, and clothing. But if you've lost every single thing you have, again, it's kind of what would you do in this situation? Of course, you're going to take food and water where you can, aren't you? Yes, actually, I thought some of the reports of looting have been... Uh I hesitate to word, use the word sympathetic, but actually they have been, uh, you know, they, people have understood the point you're making. And they've actually said sometimes, look, desperate people will do desperate things. I suppose the thought I have about the, the coverage in particular is it, it wasn't so long ago, I guess, when after a disaster like this, pretty much nothing happened. Governments never got to the regions for months sometimes. I can, I can certainly remember earthquakes going back to the sort of 60s where, you know, there was no rescue mission of, of the kind we would anticipate today. And so now we get satellite dishes there, we get satellite phones there, and people start immediately saying, there's nothing going on here, there's no help turned up here. And they're using if you like, all the modern means of communication to send back a message or a narrative that nothing's happening, when, is, as we're just hearing, actually the, the means, the logistics of getting things there, of getting more than just a satellite phone, are, are horrendously difficult. I heard uh, an, an audio diary this afternoon from an aid worker who described her day. And to be absolutely honest, all she'd done was talk to other aid workers and to people about what should be done and didn't actually have anything to report about what had happened. And that 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 is you know that that's a problem to those of us now who have an expectation that something must be done quickly. But I, I was just going to Zenia. Well, I was just going to say. I mean, a couple, just a couple of little um, kind of anecdotes, if you will. You know, in the United States, there is an expectation. It is a publicized expectation, it's a communicated expectation that, as an individual, if a disaster happens in the U.S., you have to be able to survive for seventy-two hours. So what what the American system is, they've publicized this. I used to live in California. You were expected to have medicines put aside somewhere outside the house, food, water, blankets, so that you could survive for 72 hours. I mean, that's what I talk about when I, when I talk about a, a kind of response and a preparation and a process. There is disaster responses throughout the United States so that people know what to do, where to go, how to respond. And then the government fits in on top of that. If you If you... Take yourself back to the 2005 Asian tsunami. You know, clearly the countries concerned were completely overwhelmed by this. The international response within five days was unbelievable. And where the UN wasn't able to respond quickly enough, a, a small cadre of international countries, including the United States, Canada, Norway, um, India, came together to say, OK, we're going to do the immediate response. This is what we need to do. Boom, boom, boom. UN coming in after. We'll step down. Very coordinated. And the governments were so overwhelmed, they said, yes, come on in. Help us. That's what's missing here because the government very much didn't say, come and help us. What they said was, 
we can cope with this without knowing what this was. Uh, And if there's one message to take away here, it is the governments need to actually get a handle on what they can and cannot do very, very quickly and then bring in the international support where they can. That's true. One of the other things that's come out today is, you know, the the government in Manila is saying that the figures have been exaggerated for the numbers killed. They're still saying it's an extraordinary number, some two and a half thousand, but they're saying it's not the 10,000 figure that's being quoted. Meanwhile, you have the aid workers saying, look, this is too soon to start saying that the numbers have been diminished by this. What do you think is going on well, here? Well, I think in these situations, there's always a numbers game. There are some people who will want to push the number up in order if they want to attract aid. And then let's not forget that here in Britain, there was an appeal on TV and radio last night, which has raised millions and millions of pounds, probably off the back of reports that there are a large number of, of dead. So in a sense, sometimes an exaggerated figure can have, a, can have some benefit. On the other hand, for political reasons, sometimes, you know, the, the host country would like to play down the number of people killed. But suppose the reality is, how does anyone have the faintest idea, given the remoteness of some of these places and the fact that people haven't even got there yet? But actually, the media demands a number the whole time. We, can, you know, we live by this number because it, it kind of, if we haven't got a number, we can't put it in a running order. You know, we, we need some kind of metric of the disaster. Uh, and therefore, people offer up numbers sometimes without any validity at all. And Stuart, I guess there is also a media game being played by the, the palace here in Manila as well, because they want to be seen to be doing the right thing. They know there's you know, elections always over the horizon. So even for them, there's a, there's a media you know, battle to be played. Yes. And let's, let's go back you know, to, to uh, the Sandy uh, hurricane in, in, in the States last year, where uh, you know, the, uh, the New Jersey governor got re-elected the other day, probably because he handled a disaster rather well. So that Actually, politicians are always thinking, how does it look? I mean, ever since George Bush made a terrible mess of the New Orleans uh, disaster, politicians have perhaps been even more sensitive to the way they look during a disaster. Now, let's move on to Washington, where US Secretary of State John Kerry is pleading with lawmakers there not to go forward with more sanctions uh, against Iran. Uh, These these sanctions, Zania, were already being considered by Congress. but he's pleading with them to stop. And I guess the, the, the phrase that's been so important over the last couple of weeks has been the building of confidence. And I guess that's the, the risk for him here, that even if they were in the, in, in the machine, as it were, it's not going to help that confidence building, is it? Yes, there's a, there's, a whole, there's a whole kind of illogic, if you will, to this process. Because on the one hand, um, the Republican and Democratic um, senators have said, you know, we need to continue impressing upon the Iranians that... You know, there isn't wiggle room, that this is the only path available to them. But they're also saying, yeah, but realistically, they're not going to be imposed for another six months to a year because that's how long it takes to impose them. So it really shouldn't matter to the Iranians. And you kind of ask, you have to ask yourself the question, well, if they're not going to be imposed for six months to a year, why does it matter if you actually hold for another 10 days until the talks can, can be completed? Because the big, you know, the big struggle between the P5 plus one, and the Iranians is a question of trust. Do we trust them? Do they trust us? And the answer at the moment is no, not even slightly. And so this this kind of intangible, amorphous element of trust needs to be built. And it clearly does send a very strong message to the Iranians that while we're talking to you on the one hand, we're also imposing more sanctions on you with the other hand. Of course, to be fair, one should actually put down the argument which a lot of people say, which is they wouldn't have come to the table without sanctions. Um, But nevertheless, do you need more sanctions? And for you, Zania, do you think that your reading of it, do you think that Congress will listen to Kerry? No. 
I think it's very unlikely Congress will listen to Kerry. I think that the discussions will go forward. But the reality is, is that it's not going. It's it's, it's very unlikely to be put to a final vote, um, if if not impossible, in the Senate um, and perhaps in the House um, by the time this next round of negotiations go forward. But I would say one thing about the negotiations: they've taken a week long halt essentially in negotiations. That's a very dangerous thing uh, in in such high level negotiations. You're giving parties on all sides who don't want to deal the space and the time to really put up their defences to prevent a deal, whether it's the Israelis, whether it's those on Congress on the Hill, or whether it's the hawks in Iran. So I'm, I'm made a little nervous by this week-long hiatus. Stuart, are you made nervous by it as well? Do you feel that there is an unravelling happening here? Well, I have a sort of slightly odd-sounding theory about this, was that from the moment that Obama rang Rouhani in his car going from the UN to the airport, it kind of looks too easy. It doesn't look difficult enough. Now, I know that behind the scenes there's been an enormous amount of work done going back years to try to have these confidence-building measures. But the fact that progress, even actually in truth, is saying that actually these are not enormous steps, but that the Iranians seem to be coming to the table at all, it almost gives Israel, which is in a sense the crucial, you know, that Israel's influence in Congress you know, can never be understated, it seems to me. So what you've got here is uh, Obama and Kerry appearing to make progress almost sometimes too easily. Israel, in a sense, therefore building up scepticism about, about I- I- Iran's real motives and about Rouhani's real motives. And actually, maybe there's, a, maybe there's something that actually having a break in the, in, in the negotiations might actually get the message across that they're not that easy and, in a sense, make it look as though Kerry is not an easy touch, if you like, for the Iranians. So uh, I take the, the point that actually, you know, sometimes when you lose that momentum, you really do lose, you know, you, you, you lose the, the sense of direction where you're going. But I could also argue that cosmetically, it may look better that there are a four, few more stumbling points along the road to, to any kind of deal. Well, there's lots of stories that we want to get through in this first half hour of the show, but we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Aperitivo with me, Andrew Tuck. I'm here with Xenia Dormady and Stuart Purvis. When we return, we'll look at the newest members of the UN Human Rights Council. The Glenlivet is the original Speyside single malt whiskey, and since 1824, its flavour has defined the region. Join master distiller Alan Winchester to determine the future of this historic distillery. Three new whiskies will set sail around the world and members of the Guardians of the Glenlivet are invited to decide which will become the Guardians chapter. To discover more and write the next chapter of the legacy, join the Guardians of the Glenlivet.com. The Glenlivet, the single malt that started it all. Enjoy responsibly. The Monocle Book Tour has touched down in the warmer parts of the globe and this November we'll be packing the snowshoes and chilling out in the Nordic region. Starting on November the 18th in Stockholm and taking in a different country each day, we'll be schussing through Oslo and Copenhagen before ending up in Helsinki on the 21st and we'll be bringing you live shows right here on Monocle 24 from each stop along the way. So if you want to hear how the Monocle Guide to Better Living is going down in the snowier parts of Europe, point your mouse towards book.monocle.com and be sure to tune in to Nordic Leg of the Monocle Book Tour this November on Monocle 24.
And welcome back to Aperitivo here on Monocle 24. With me today is Zania Dormandy from Chatham House and Stuart Purvis, author of When Reporters Cross the Line. Let's head now to New York, where China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Vietnam, Cuba and Algeria won seats yesterday on the United Nations Human Rights Council. 14 new members in all were elected to the council, which is based in Geneva. Uh, Zania, explain to us, uh, <laughs> even, even, even you're, you're laughing... How how the hell does this happen? I I, I can give you a a um, you know I, I can tell you the process. You know it, it, the seats go to certain regions of the world. Within those regions, countries fight in some cases over who's going to get that seat. Um, in some regions, they don't fight. So in the case of Saudi Arabia, you'll remember a few weeks ago the story was that Saudi Arabia gained a seat in the UN Security Council, uh, decided to forego it because they were irritated, to put it mildly, with the United States. Jordan looks like they're now getting Saudi Arabia's seat. Saudi Arabia is now looks like it's getting what was going to be, what appeared to be Jordan's seat on the uh, Human Rights Council. So I can give you the process. Um, the logic, however, you understand it. Um, the logic if you're one of those countries, because they don't want the Human Rights Council looking at their country, and by sitting on the on the uh, uh, by sitting on the council, they can actually prevent stuff, uh, things like that happening. From the external perspective, it is ludicrous that you have countries like this, countries that have their own human rights abuses problems themselves, that don't permit the council to go into their countries, would sit on this council. I mean, it's farcical. Stuart, when you look at this lineup, you know here we have countries that will bulldoze your home without giving you any kind of uh, recompense, that will jail you for being gay, that will, won't allow you to drive a car, that will kind of variously torture if you speak out against the, the, the regime. Does it make a mockery of the UN? It gives international organisations a terrible name. I mean, it absolutely plays to the critics of the UN, of which, of course, there are many, uh, certainly in, in the United States. It, it kind of exposes this this kind of false bonhomie almost between countries when they sit around these tables and share out these baubles between them of who's going to sit on which committee. Um, it, it's just, I mean, I think I saw one quote for the UN to elect Saudi Arabia as a world judge on human rights would be like a town making a pyromaniac into the chief of the fire department. And, you know, I, I completely sympathise with that. What, you know, I suppose the, the truth is that as a result of that, bodies like this are simply ignored. Yeah, Zania? I was just going to say, I mean, you know, let me just, for argument's sake, if nothing else, kind of put the other, you know, the, almost the other side of the coin, which is you wouldn't, you know, the, the UN, for all of its faults, of which there are many, is arguably the most legitimate organisation, international organisation out there. Um, it does carry a lot of weight. It does carry a lot of legitimacy. Um you know, don't let the the best be the. I forget what that expression. Don't let the best, you know, stop the good. This can do some good. Um, if you didn't have it at all, if you stopped it from working, that wouldn't be a positive but, but how, way how, forward. How does it, isn't isn't there a basic hypocrisy in this? How does hypocrisy and over human rights do good? So, so I agree with you. There, there are all sorts of problems with this. But the question is, does it actually move the agenda in some respects forward? Occasionally, it's just sometimes. The answer is yes, it does. I mean, if you go back, you know, there was a wonderful um, uh, report on, on Israel and um, is the, 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 the war, if you will, between Israel and Lebanon um, some years ago. And out of, out of the Human Rights Council, they commissioned a report by a South African judge. He wrote a report that really laid bare many of the faults on both sides. Was that a good product? Yes. Everybody agreed it was a good product. Yet, 
you know, it comes out of this. I mean, I agree with you. It could be so much stronger, but don't chuck the baby out with the bathwater. But isn't there a sort of predictability? And I, 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 you know, reading up about this, one sees that Israel is so often picked out. And let's be honest, Israel has a reason to be picked out. But actually, isn't it a convenient, you know, to always pick on the you know, Israel-Palestinian issue and never say to the Saudi Arabians directly, excuse me, you know, how do you, how do you explain your own record on these issues? Again, I, I can't but agree with you that it's insufficient, that it's inadequate, that, and that, you know, as I said earlier, it's, it's kind of almost fast that these countries would be on the on the committee on the on the council on the other hand does that mean we shouldn't have a council no it doesn't if you could create something as as many tried to do a few years ago and you'll remember that the old kind of human rights body on the UN was dismantled and a new one this one was created i think it was about 5 years ago now you know it, was there attempt an attempt to make it a more credible body? Absolutely. If you can't do that, should you do nothing? Well, let's let's leave it there. <laughs> we're going to turn now to one man's uh, human rights because we're going to go to Egypt, where the imprisoned former president Mohamed Morsi has said through his lawyer that he doesn't recognise the authority of the court trying him for the death of protesters during the mass protests and subsequent coup which overthrew him. Uh, now, we did also see this week that there's a kind of an easing of the curfews. Uh, there's a kind of obviously a feeling within the, the regime that they've kind of won the day. Uh, Zainia, for you, is there anything left for Mohamed Morsi to win? I, for him personally, I would find it very hard to create a scenario where he will come back into any kind of position of power. Um, I, I, I don't think it's credible. Uh, what is... You know, putting aside Morsi for a second, um, what is most sad about this scenario is you've gone from a Mubarak regime that collapsed on kind of authoritarian grounds, if you will, to in time a Morsi regime that also collapsed because it was it was not bringing people in to a new military regime effectively that is going to at some point, whether it's in the next six months or whether it's in the next 20 years, again, collapse because it's not bringing everybody in. The only solution is one that actually brings people from all sides in. They've all talked about it. None of them have done it. Stuart, we were just throwing up our hands about the UN, but should we be throwing up our hands about ourselves a little bit here as well? You know, here we have what was a coup, a, a, a duly elected president thrown into jail. And actually, the coverage is just is minuscule of this. And there's certainly very little sympathetic coverage. And it hasn't kind of followed the script that we wanted for Egypt. So really, the journalism doesn't really dig very deep anymore, does it? No, I agree. I think the narrative arc has kind of not gone the way the, the Western media planned it. And therefore, they don't quite know what to make of it and what to say about it. So we've had the sort of, you know, the on-screen challenges to the to the army of saying, well, you know, uh, you know, you may think it's the right thing to do. But this man was elected, although one doesn't feel rather like the way that, you know, the West co- Western media covers uh, elections in Gaza was as if, well, you know, actually this, this result went the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't I don't feel that there is in their hearts uh, the West uh, probably feeling that maybe by by being so sympathetic to the overthrow of Mubarak, they sort of possibly contributed to this situation, want to take sides. And for you, Zania, when you, you watch the unfolding narrative, do you have some sympathy with Morsi? Or, or, and how do you feel that the coverage has been? I don't think one can have sympathy. I mean, I think what everybody from a policy perspective and perhaps also on, on the journalist side is, you know, 
the question that we are and we should be asking us now is how do we do this better next time? Because you know there's going to be a next time. You know, how do you get the information out there in a way, you know, do, does the international reporting have a responsibility to get reporting out not just to the international community but to Egyptians about what the choices are? Is transparency a weapon that you can use to bring compromise, to bring people together? I think these are the questions that we should be asking ourselves now because we know we're going to, whether it's in Egypt or it's in another country, we're know we're going to get back to this to this real really fundamental question of how do you create societies that are inclusive um, and how do you pressure sometimes persuade other times countries and individuals to be inclusive and that's a role that the diplomats have to do but it's also you know there is a role for civil society in the media well finally let's just shift along the coast a little bit. Let's head west to a, another country where the, the, the kind of consequences of revolution were being played out uh, to a tragic effect uh, back in 2012 because there was a piece of TV journalism in the US uh, on the 60 Minutes show which uh, has finally offered an apology for a false report that it broadcast involving the events of 11th, 11th of September 2012 in Benghazi when the US uh, uh, ambassador there was killed. Now they've apologised and they've admitted that they, they kind of they ran a report that was completely made up by a gentleman who wasn't there and who fabricated it and they've kind of buried their apology uh, as, as you watch this what's your take well uh, the book you mentioned that i've written uh, is called when reporters cross the line and one of the chapters is is basically about people who realize they've made a mistake in the report they made what do they then do about it and i think the problem that that cbs has about this report uh, is that it was tied in with a book which was being published um, by a subsidiary of the same company. And I have to say that, that's, that to me, that's, I smell a rat there. I mean, basically, what, what one was wondering is whether CBS carried out their own investigations into this man's credibility or because another part of the same organisation was publishing the book, they sort of took it as read as if he was, uh, but he was what he says he was and he saw what he said he saw. So this is a, this is a kind of big setback for old media. And, of course, one of the reasons it comes about is because there was a time when if an organisation like six, CBS 60 Minutes said something, it was kind of true until, you know, a lot of somebody had to do a lot of work to prove it was untrue. But now there are so many people across social media challenging so many small points that actually became qu quite clear quite early that this story may be wrong, but it took CBS quite a few days to admit that it was wrong. And for you, Zania, you know, this gentleman, uh, Dylan Davis, uh, he called himself uh, Morgan Jones, and he claimed to have uh, even uh, thrown his uh, rifle butt in the face of an, an al-Qaeda member. Do you think that there's a kind of... Uh, there was a point that somebody you know, on, a, on a big show like this that's well-resourced, that has loads of researchers, should have actually pulled this story before it happened? I, you know, I'm not a journalist. I can't, I can't evaluate the decision-making process that went through this. Um, what is sad to me is, and, and is an important thing to note, is, is the repercussion that journalism has on politics and vice versa. Um, you know, the mutually supportive or, or, or otherwise relationship between these. So, you know, the, the, the journalistic story on 60 Minutes has really played into what's happening in Washington today. Um, you know, the Republicans saying in, in some cases we're not going to approve ambassadors who are really needed out in country because of this story, because of Benghazi, because of the questioning. Um, and, and I think it is really important for people to realise how the, the kind of repercussions that stories like this, the repercussions that the media has for 
you know, ha- what happens in, in diplomatic circles, what happens in political circles. I mean, there's such a close tie up there and they need to respect that as they're making their story. Well, uh, we're going to have to leave it there, but it's an, an amazing story what's happened in Benghazi and we, I'm sure we will return to it. But for now, Zenia Dormady and Stuart Purvis, thank you very much for joining us here today on Aperitivo. London, New York, Tokyo. This is Monocle 24. London, New York, Tokyo. Tuva Monocle 24. Londres, Nova York, Tokyo. London, New York, Tokyo. This is Monocle 24. London is New York is Tokyo. See on Monocle 24. London, New York, Tokyo, Monocle 24. London, New York, Tokyo. This, This is, is Monocle 24. Plenty still to come then. In the second half of today's aperitivo, we'll head to the Monocle Cafe with Josh Cohen, author of the new book, The Private Life. We'll delve into the Ayatollah Khamenei's hidden billions in Iran and we'll preview what's coming up on today's Globalist Asia on Monocle Daily. But before all that, here's Paul Osborne with the World News Headlines. Aid has finally reached some of the worst affected areas after last Friday's huge typhoon in the Philippines. The first supply planes have now arrived in Tacloban, the city which was largely destroyed by the typhoon and subsequent storm surge. Thousands of people, though, are waiting at the city's airport in the hope they'll be evacuated. More than 100 Tamils have been stopped from entering the capital of Sri Lanka, Colombo, which is preparing to host a summit of Commonwealth leaders. All have relatives who disappeared during or after the country's civil war. Meanwhile, a team of British journalists who've reported on war crimes allegations in Sri Lanka have been prevented from visiting a former war zone. The ousted former president of Egypt is refusing to appoint lawyers to represent him in court, saying the charges against him are illegitimate. Mohamed Moussi has insisted again that he is Egypt's rightful ruler in a new statement. He says he was kidnapped by the military after he was deposed in July. The United States has declared two Nigerian militant groups, Boko Haram and Ansaru, as terrorist organisations. They've been blamed for thousands of deaths in a violent campaign over the last four years. The decision means it's now illegal under US law to provide material support to either group. And a court in Spain's failed to find anyone directly responsible for causing the country's worst ever environmental disaster. The oil tanker Prestige sank off northern Spain 11 years ago, polluting thousands of miles of coastline. But a court has acquitted the ship's captain and chief engineer, as well as a senior Spanish official. And those are the latest headlines on Monocle 24. Thank you very much, Paul, and welcome back to Aperitivo Live here on Monocle 24. The time is now 18.34 here in London, which means it's 16.34 in Rio de Janeiro. And it's time now to head to the Monocle Cafe on Chilton Street. In today's show, we're going to meet Josh Cohen. Josh teaches modern literary theory at Goldsmiths uh, College uh, here in London. He's also a psychoanalyst and the author of the book How to Read Freud. He's now written a new treatise published by Granter Books on the state of privacy in our lives. It's called The Private Life, Why We, Why we Remain in the Dark. So what does privacy mean in this postmodern age and how is it under assault? Josh is joined in the uh, Monocle Cafe by our news editor, Tom Edwards. Over to you, Tom. 
Thanks very much, Andrew. Yes, I'm here with uh, Josh now. Um, Josh, it's an interesting place to start, isn't it, talking about privacy. I guess with uh, the modern media as we know it, we always talk about how intrusive it is, how everyone is bearing all, literally or metaphorically. Um, is there still such a thing, really, as, as a private life uh, in, in, in the sort of modern age? Well, one of the things that I'm talking about is that although our culture seems to be doing so much to eliminate a sense of private life, um, and by that I mean both the intrusions of the media but also our collusion in it in the form of exhibitionistic display, whether we're talking about social networking or reality TV. Um, but what I'm really arguing is that there's something that the culture can't eliminate, which is the fact that privacy itself is something we carry inside us. It's not just something we leave behind when we leave our bedrooms or when we sort of um, leave our bank accounts or the other sort of external details of our internal lives. There's something about the inner life that, that can't be eliminated. And that's partly what the book's about. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because people often say, we talk about, oh, well, you know, just be yourself. They tell people on you know, reality TV contestants, be yourself. That's all people want to see. And they, it, that idea of, of revealing your true personality. But you're suggesting what, something a bit more complex, that what there's perhaps a, a fundamental thing we're uncertain about. Is it a, a, perhaps a darkness inside ourselves that we're all slightly afraid of? I think that's right. Um... I think that the invitation or the injunction that we hear so much to be yourself, you know, reality TV contestants are constantly told, be yourself. I just want to be myself. Um, In fact, my sense is that you're never less yourself than when you are contrivedly performing this person called myself. Um, it reminds me of, you know, David Byrne lyric, which, uh, which I love, which is, you know, um, I can barely touch my own self. How can I touch someone else? I'm just an advertisement for a version of myself. Um, and that's, I think, what you become in this quest to be yourself. Um, I think that this fantasy about sort of being very transparent, bringing yourself into the open is exactly about the anxiety that we all have that there's something inside us that doesn't allow itself to be sort of exposed to the light, that doesn't allow itself to be seen and doesn't allow itself to be known. And I think that there's an impulse both in us to make it known because that would somehow make it less frightening, less strange, less eerie. And in particular, and I think this is a lot of what media intrusion is about, um, an impulse in um, outside of us to make sure that there isn't anything, and I think celebrities often be, become the target of this, there isn't anything that gets left in the dark that we're not allowed to know about. It's absolutely fascinating. I wonder then, what do you think people, if people are concerned that they haven't got this balance right, that there are these uncertainties, if they're quite fundamental, what, what's the, the solution? You're obviously also a, a psychoanalyst. You know, should we all be, uh, be signing up for, for sessions? Is that something that you think maybe people don't do enough of? Um, I'm not a great evangelist for psychoanalysis. Part of the reason for that is I don't really believe in recommending it as a kind of cultural panacea because then I think you lose the sense of what it's about you should come to psychoanalysis because you want to and that that desire really comes out of yourself out of your own experience Um, you have to sort of come to a certain point in your life where 
you feel you want to find out more about yourself. And if you're sent or if you feel some pressure to go because you're not conforming or you're somehow not well adapted to society, well, it, it can do something for you. But you often run into a brick wall, which is that you have to find out stuff about yourself you don't like. And if you're not sort of primed to do that in some sense, through your own curiosity, you can't do it. So I would say that... You know, part of the solution is to try and find ways to cultivate curiosity about ourselves, about what's going on uh, on underneath, to try and make this strange inner self or double, as I talk about it in the book, um, more of, if not a friend, at least someone we can be curious about rather than somebody that we can try and fend off um, and turn into a sort of, you know, into something very ordinary and familiar. Uh, now it's interesting you mentioned uh, sort of you know double self. I want to ask you about your own sort of double self or triple self, if you like. Uh, you mentioned obviously working as a psychoanalyst. You've written a number of, sort of academic works. Uh, this book, uh, perhaps you know, is a, is a sort of more, if you like, mainstream title. I wonder what's that experience like as a writer, and do you have one of those uh, sort of different personalities, different hats you put on that that you feel you you wear best? Um, well, in terms of um, the different roles writing uh analysis and teaching i actually there i don't have a particular sort of preferred self or role partly because um, i'm not hedging um it's partly because for me they complement each other and they all answer to a certain aspect of myself i think writing is very much about finding a voice about um a creative outlet that um is is you know not so readily available in the other two which is very much about listening to others um, it, it, writing is more about listening to yourself. Teaching allows you to be more external, allows you to have more of a sort of public face and um, present a more familiar self to the world. And um, analysis is great because, you know, although it's about other people's interiority, it has to be about your own. It has to be about listening to yourself. So I like all of them. But in terms of academic and more, I have to say that I've really enjoyed writing for a readership. Um, you know, it, 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 you can you can imagine that it gives you less scope because you've got to worry about what readers are thinking or how they're going to take it. But for me, it was actually a big creative release because it's about finding a voice, which academic writing isn't really about. I mean, academic writing is a way about suppressing a voice, about you know speaking in a kind of agreed, neutral, scholarly language. Um, and so one of the things that was most pleasurable about writing the book was to, to find a register, um, a way that, that, that sounded like me, but also you know, not exactly like me. Well, I think uh, the readers can judge themselves. I think they'll be uh, pretty happy that you found that, that register. Uh, the book is The Private Life, uh, Why We Remain in the Dark uh, by Josh Cohen. Josh, thanks very much for coming to speak to us about it here on Monica 24. Thanks. And uh, with that, Andrew, uh, it's back to you in the studio. Thank you very much, Tom. And he certainly didn't leave us in the dark, did he? That was uh, Tom Edwards at the Monocle Cafe speaking with Josh Cohen, author of The Private Life, Why We Remain in the Dark, which is out now. Up next, we hear about the vast riches of Iran's supreme leader. Stay tuned to find out more on this episode of Aperitivo on Monocle 24. Inspiring the likes of Charles Dickens since 1824, the Glenlivet may be the definitive Speyside single malt whiskey, but that's just one chapter of the story. Master distiller Alan Winchester is inviting the Glenlivet's global community of whiskey connoisseurs to help curate the flavours of their next limited edition whiskey, The Guardian's Chapter. 
To discover more, join the guardians at theglenlivet.com. The Glenlivet, the single malt that started it all. Enjoy responsibly. The Entrepreneur seeks out the seers, the sages and the successes of the business world. Every week, we take you on an hour-long tour to uncover the hidden, extraordinary, curious and inspiring stories you won't hear anywhere else. I don't see any borders between countries if it's Japan, England, France. My approach is that I believe that people anywhere in the world, there are people who understand and appreciate it. There's a push maybe that people want to have more of their stuff made locally because they know where it's coming from. From the kiosk owners of Cairo to the coffee culture of Tel Aviv, from the beer brewers of Ghana to the piano makers of Greece. Intrigued? Well, tune in to hear how the best entrepreneurial minds tick, not just the ups and downs of the FTSE. We didn't buy into a design studio or a commercial entity. We bought into a factory. So if you have an idea and want to drop that nine to five, you've just found your new business Bible. That's The Entrepreneurs, premiering every Wednesday at 1900 hours UK time in association with Pictay. And welcome back to Aperitivo with me, Andrew Tuck. Now for a look into a special investigation into the assets of the Iranian leadership. Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, has received praise for his Spartan lifestyle. It's a slight surprise then that he's actually one of the richest men in the world. A six-month investigation by Reuters news agency has found that Ayatollah Khamenei is in control of a financial empire worth 100 billion US dollars, which includes businesses as wide-ranging as a birth control pill factory and an ostrich farm. All these businesses are in the ownership of an organisation called SETAD. And in the words of the US Treasury Department, the organisation is a massive network of front companies hiding the assets on behalf of Iran's leadership and also generating billions of dollars of revenue every year. Well, earlier, Marcus Hippie uh, spoke to the author of the report, Steve Setlow, and Marcus began by asking about the origins of SETAD. It actually dates back to 1989, right before Iran's first supreme leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, um, died. A couple of months before, he issued an edict asking two aides to manage and sell what are supposedly were abandoned properties in Iran. After the uh, 1979 revolution that overthrew the Shah, uh, many properties linked to the Shah or his family were, were seized. And it, over the years, it kind of got out of control. And Ayatollah Khomeini had tried several times to sort of fix this, but, but it wasn't very successful. So in 1989, he asked that a new organization be created, and that became Satad. And its original task was to manage and sell these properties and donate most of the proceeds to charity. But that mission seems to have changed during the years. How is that wealth nowadays being spent? We found in, in our investigation, and by the way, it was not just me, but a number of other Reuters colleagues, we found that within a few short years, they, instead of giving the money to other to, to charities, they were keeping it for themselves and amassing a huge portfolio of, of real estate. And then beginning about the year 2000 or so, they set up an investment division. And then after uh, a few years, beginning in around 2006 or seven, they decided that they wanted to 
kind of create something that mirrored Samsung or LG in the South Korea, these are kind of a giant conglomerate. And at that point, Satad started investing heavily in public and private companies inside Iran. And we found dozens and dozens of these in which they held either small stakes or large stakes. The, the most important and valuable one, I believe, is the telecommunications company of Iran, which was the largest um, privatization in, in Iranian history. It was in 2009. And though it was reported at the time that the Revolutionary Guard had gained control, in fact, Satad was part of a, a consortium that, that purchased 50% plus one shares of the company. Let's talk about the connection with the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei. You already emphasized that we are not talking about his private funds, but what exactly is the connection? Well, again, this organization reports directly to him, and it's completely unaccountable. Over the years, as we disclose in the three-part series, which is available on Reuters.com, the parliament, um, a government watchdog, agency, the judiciary, all exempted themselves from auditing the books of any organization that reported to the Supreme Leader. And that, of course, includes Satad. So as a result, there's no government oversight. There's also no public accounting of this organization, which, interestingly, is quite different. Uh, there's another uh, big foundation which gets a lot of attention called Bonyad Mustafafan, that organization, you can look up on its website, its annual reports come out every year, published in English. You won't find anything like that for Satad. So essentially this provides a huge pool of money and assets that are at the disposal of the supreme leader, who, who is the, you know, the, the individual who basically calls all the shots on you know, the future of its nuclear development program, its its elections, you know, everything. He has ultimate say. So when you look at uh, the position the Supreme Leader has in Iran and has had for quite a while, how important is that for him? Well, we think they view it as very important. As you mentioned, you know, it's very hard to pinpoint the exact value of this, but it's, you know, we estimate it's close to 100 billion U.S. dollars, as, as you said. What's interesting here is that it's well known for a long time that the Supreme Leader has control over the military and, as I mentioned, like the po- politics in, in Iran. What was much less well known was his control over the Iranian economy, which you know has been hobbled by by sanctions from the EU and the U.S. and you know other uh, the UN. But over the years, in recent years, this all started in around 2006-7 period. His organization has accumulated stakes in essentially every sector of the Iranian economy. That would include the banking sector, the energy sector, the construction sector. I might point out that Satad also has a charity division, but even that one um, has stakes in a big pharmaceutical holding company that has more than 20 subsidiaries and, you know, more than a billion dollars in sales, according to to its own website. So um, this really gives him kind of economic clout um, in addition to military clout. And and we also think that it's used for patronage as well because the money seems to go in part at least to fund his bureaucracy that he uses to 
to run Iran. And um, it's known as the leader's house, and it's, it's based in Iran. One thing I haven't pointed out, by the way, and you haven't asked about, is the fact that the source of a lot of this money came from these abandoned properties. In fact, most of these properties weren't abandoned at all. They were, in fact, owned by ordinary Iranians, business people, members of religious minorities who, for various reasons, had left the country, only to find that their property had been taken over by some court and been given to Satad, and that Satad was routinely auctioning off these properties. And we have a number of kind of disturbing cases of people who lost their homes to Satad. Well, that was Reuters' Steve Stecklow with Marcus Hippie on the hidden billions of Iran's Ayatollah Khamenei. It's time for some music now, and uh, we've chosen a, a tune that we hope that the Supreme Leader might enjoy. This is uh, ABBA and Money, Money, Money. Well, that was uh, Money, Money, Money by ABBA. And, uh, well, the guy from uh, somewhere else we know uh, had a peep at the Ayatollah's uh, iPod earlier. It seems he's a real fan of ABBA. He's also got on there The Winner Takes It All and Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. Uh, you're, you're listening to Aperitivo with me, Andrew Tuck. And it's that time where we're fast approaching the end of the programme. But before we go, let's have a look at what's coming up on tonight's other programmes. I'm joined now by Tomas Lewis, who's producing The Globalist Asia, and also Barbara Feeney, who's behind tonight's Monocle Daily. Uh, Thomas, uh, let's start with you. Uh, what's your, what's your, your lead story? Hi there, Or Andrew. your most exciting story? Or most exciting story? OK, well, they're not the same question. So I oh, think okay. uh, maybe the story that'll maybe tug at the heartstrings of a certain part of the, uh, those interested in politics in Australia will like our third item tonight. Obviously, Prime Minister, the former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, gave a very emotional speech today to Parliament, saying that he was in fact going to quit politics for good he got very choked up very teary and obviously it was a remarkable premiership the the twice that he took office um and the very you know short amount of time he was in power kind of for the second time around and it's a story that i think you know is one of the most remarkable political stories anywhere for a very long time so we'll be looking at what role rudd might play after politics but also whether within politics he might actually still have some influence uh, and uh, do you think other people will be crying in Australia for him at this point or was it more uh, just for himself he was crying I think probably well he he played a big part on his family he wanted to spend a lot more time with his family which is obviously what a lot of politicians do I'm not sure many people will shed too many tears obviously maybe they would have voted him in uh, <laughs> otherwise Barbara any tears in your show well, there is a little bit of upset, Andrew, because we are in the States talking about Obamacare. Yesterday, Clinton, who originally was a backer of uh, Obamacare, he spoke out against it. This is former President Clinton, former not, President not, Clinton. not his wife. Not his wife, forgive me, Bill Clinton. And then the Republicans took the chance to kind of jump on top of what Clinton said. And they were sort of criticising it because there obviously has been a lot of problems. So we are going to be discussing that further tonight. And uh, what's your lead then? Or was that 
that was the tearful story, wasn't it? The, that was the tearful story. So we don't want to peak too soon on the globalist Asia. We're going to keep <laughs> the emotional pull of the show to a little bit further in. So we're going to lead with this uh, very important meeting that's taken place in China um, over the weekend, leading on into this weekend. It's obviously seen as a, really the blueprint for the next five or so years in China. Um, obviously, growth is sort of an interesting topic at the moment, and we want to see whether these measures that are now filtering out into the press actually do make things look good for the future of China and we'll be unpicking those things later on the Globalist Asia. Uh, Well I look forward to uh, listening to both of those shows and uh, telling you who's the winner in the morning. Uh, That was uh, Thomas Lewis who's producing the Globalist Asia and Barbara Feeney who's behind tonight's Monocle Daily. And that is all the time we have for on today's Aperitivo. My thanks in particular to our special guests, Zenia Dormady and Stuart Purvis. Today's show was produced by Daniel Giacopelli, researched by Alexa Fermanich and Matt Alagaya, and our studio manager was Claire Urban. Uh, Next, after the headlines, is The Entrepreneurs, our weekly business show. We'll visit the hair salon, King of Brazil, meet a sci-fi science fiction writer turned ice cream impresario in Brooklyn. You couldn't make it up. And talk with the founder of Tom's Shoes. There was really no way to kind of predict whether the shoes that these kids need would come again and again because it was all based on donations. We th- uh, Poor old Thomas Lewis thought we were going to talk about his shoes there, but no, we're not. We're moving on. Remember, this is the final week of season one of Aperitivo, but we'll be back in the new year for season two with more great guests, stories and reports from around the world. But until then, the show will be back at the same time tomorrow at 1800 hours London time. But for this edition, it's time to say goodbye. And thank you for listening. this watch this watch is a witness a witness to words that moved nations it's dead men faster further it's been worn by luminaries visionaries champions it doesn't just tell time it tells history rolex It's 6 a.m. in Melbourne, 2100 hours in Beirut, 1900 hours in London, and 1400 hours in Toronto. You're listening to Monocle 20.